From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father Wade Menezes is coming to us live from Parts Unknown. We will get with him in just a moment. If you'd like to be part of the program, the uh, number to call is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five and you can always send us an email that email address is open line at ewtn Com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Matt Gubensky is screening your phone calls. And our social media maven is Mr. Jeff Burson. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Tuesday, Father Wade Menezes. And for this week's parish mission, you didn't even have to leave the Commonwealth. No, I did not. I am here in Eddyville, Kentucky at St. Mark's Parish and also St. Paul's Parish in Princeton, Kentucky. Both parishes are overseen by Father Joji Joseph, one of my fellow uh, priests here in the Diocese of Owensboro, Kentucky, and he has the Fathers of Mercy here this week uh, preaching a, a mission to both parishes combined. So it's great to be here this week in my home area. And one of the primary things that you do at these parish missions is hear confessions, and you're going to talk a little bit about uh, an aspect of the sacrament today. Yeah, I'd like to talk about the three acts of the penitent, what's called the three acts of the penitent doctrine. And this is because, Jack, you know, last week on the 21st, we talked about the importance of a rightly informed conscience uh, to make a good confession, at least in part, and just to live a, a well-lived life uh, in addition to that. And the week before that, on the 14th of March, uh, we talked about 10 ways that confession sets us free and the importance of coming back to the church if you've had any number of year lapse uh, from the sacrament of reconciliation and the Most Holy Eucharist, the only two sacraments of the seven that can be received over and over again. So I thought it'd be nice to uh, kind of sum all that up from these previous two Tuesdays with today's topic of the three acts of the penitent. You know, Pope Benedict XVI once said, holiness, holiness does not consist uh, in, in not making mistakes or never sinning. No, that's not holiness. Rather, holiness grows with the capacity for one's conversion, one's repentance, and one's willingness to begin again, and above all, with the capacity for reconciliation and forgiveness. And so today is a new day for each and every one of us, huh? because we're all sinners. God's mercy is abundant, and He wants to forgive you for whatever sins you have committed. All you have to do is ask for His forgiveness with a humble and contrite heart, and that's exactly what the Sacrament of Reconciliation is for. There is so much hope, Jack, for all of us. 
And sacred scripture tells us, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. That's Romans 8, verse 2. And uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, this is the day of salvation. This is the day of the Lord. So again, today is a new day, and we can always, always return. Because again, holiness does not consist in not making mistakes or never sinning. No, not at all. Rather, holiness grows with the capacity for conversion, repentance, and willingness to begin again, and above all, with the capacity for reconciliation and forgiveness. So knowing more about yourself, that is, growing in greater self-knowledge, one of my topics at the parish mission this week, will help each one of us work through our struggles and sins and grow in holiness and virtue, so you can find the peace, the healing, the happiness, and the exciting relationship with Jesus Christ that God has planned for you from all eternity. So what are these three acts of the penitent that are so integral to a well-received, well-made, holy, reverent uh, confession, sacrament of reconciliation? Well, uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church tells us it's contrition, confession, and satisfaction. Number 1491 of the Catechism says the sacrament of penance is a whole consisting in three actions on the part of the penitent, along with the priest's absolution, fourthly speaking. The so-called three acts of the penitent, himself or herself, are contrition, also called repentance, confession, the disclosure of sins to the priest, and the intention to make satisfaction, that is to make reparation and do works of reparation, uh, which includes fulfilling the, the penance that the priest gave you. So first, regarding contrition, contrition, again called repentance, must be inspired by motives that arise from faith, right? If repentance arises from love of charity for God and sorrow for having offended him, it is called perfect contrition. But on the other hand, if it's founded on other motives, like the fear of punishment of hell or, or whatnot, it, it is called imperfect contrition. But either type suffices for the sacrament of confession. Think here of the well-known act of contrition prayer, and I detest all of my sins because I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell, okay? Uh, that would be the imperfect aspect, but most of all, because they have offended you, my God, that would be the perfect aspect of contrition. The good news is either one, perfect or imperfect, suffices for the contrition needed for a good, holy, reverent confession, contrition being the first of these three acts of the penitent. The second act of the penitent regarding confession is the confession of sin itself. One who desires to obtain reconciliation with God and with the church must confess to a priest all unconfessed mortal sins he remembers after having carefully examined his conscience. The confession of venial sins without being necessary in itself for confession is nevertheless strongly recommended by the church. And third, regarding satisfaction, the making of satisfaction, the confessor proposes the performance of certain acts of satisfaction or penance to be performed by the penitent in order to repair, where we get the word reparation from, right? Repair the harm caused by sin and to reestablish habits befitting a true disciple of Christ. Amen to that. This is called making reparation for one's sins. Only priests who have received the proper faculty of absolving from the authority of the church um, can forgive sins in the name of Christ. And then 1496, I love this, Jack. It says, what are the spiritual effects, the spiritual effects of the sacrament of penance? Well, uh, there's namely six. Reconciliation with God, which the penitent recovers in grace. Reconciliation with the church. Remission of the eternal punishment incurred by mortal sins. And remission, at least in part, of temporal punishments resulting from sin and peace and serenity of conscience and spiritual consolation, and number six, an increase of spiritual strength for the Christian battle.
So the three acts of the penitent, again, are contrition, confession, and satisfaction. A fourth one found in some of the older sacramental theology textbooks is the examination of conscience, which the new catechism of 1993, the universal catechism, does include, but in a different part of the catechism itself. It, it's, it comes before the discussion of the sacrament of penance, properly speaking. It is understood that this has to be made before going to confession so as to make one's confession more fruitful. You know, we spend around five minutes or, or thereabouts, uh, three to five minutes, making a, a good uh, examination of conscience. That's if confession is regular in your life. Uh, if, if it's been a long, long time since your last confession, you want to spend more time with your examination of conscience. But the church wants that to be an automatic thing, even on a daily basis, if we don't go to confession, to, to make a, a particular exam at midday and a general exam at the end of the day. So that's why in the catechism it appears in its own a section apart from uh, the sacrament of penance, properly speaking. Uh, so again, uh, these essential elements of, of the sacrament of reconciliation, these, these three acts of the penitent, uh, contrition, confession, and satisfaction. And we could also say that, in, that an essential element on the part of the sacrament itself would be the proper absolution from the priest saying the proper words. And the USCCB has given us the new formulary, which we could begin to use this past Ash Wednesday on February 22nd of 2023, but which we will be using mandatorily universally here in the U.S., um, by Divine Mercy Sunday. And it's just two minor changes in the form of absolution. Uh, so I, looking at the, at the um, compendium of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and I wrap it up with this, Jack, uh, it simply asks in question number 303, what are the acts of the penitent? And this is the compendium of the Catechism now, which should be on the shelf next to the Catechism in everyone's home. Uh, they are a careful examination of conscience, Contrition or repentance, which is perfect when it is motivated by love of God and imperfect if it rests on other motives and which includes the determination to not sin again. Number two, confession, which consists in the telling of one's sins to the priest and satisfaction or the carrying out of certain acts of penance, which the confessor imposes upon the penitent to repair the damage caused by sin. So there you have it, the three acts of the penitent, uh, contrition, confession, and satisfaction. And also the absolution of the priests as a second part to that. And together, those two parts, the three acts of the penitent and the absolution of the priests, we call the essential elements of the sacrament of reconciliation. So again, holiness does not consist in not making mistakes or never sinning, no. But rather, holiness grows with the capacity for conversion, repentance, and a willingness to begin again. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833 288 
888-900-3986. You know, if you're listening to EWTN Radio today on a local Catholic radio station, be sure to support those good folks and the efforts that they are providing to you. If you're not listening on a local AM or FM station, and if you're doing that because you don't have one in your area, perhaps our Lord has you listening to this message right now because he would have you play a role in making that happen for your local community. If you'd like to learn more about how you can possibly uh, partake of such a wonderful blessing from our Lord, simply send Steve Splonskowski an email. Just send it to radio at EWTN.com and address it to Steve. That's radio at EWTN.com. Dot com. Again, we have wide open phone lines and uh, plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Um, so, Father, um, we talked about the, the responsibilities or the acts of the penitent with regard to the sacrament of reconciliation and the importance of making a good examination of conscience. You wanted to kind of put a little bow on that conversation. Yeah, I think this whole topic, Jack, is important precisely because we're in Lent. But even more so than that, we're approaching Holy Week. Now, everybody who listens to Open Line Tuesday uh, knows that I'm a big advocate of monthly confession, right? And I've mentioned many times that the nine chief benefits of a frequent confession, which we receive primarily from Pope Pius XII and Pope St. Paul VI, uh, conscience is purified. Grace is increased, both sanctifying and actual. Will is strengthened. Uh, self-knowledge is increased. And, and remember, self-knowledge is the first step needed to grow in personal sanctification, according to St. Thomas Aquinas. Know your virtues to advance them. Know your vices to begin to uproot them. More rapid growth in virtue takes place. Humility grows. Bad habits are assisted in being overcome. And a spirit of mediocrity or lukewarmness is assisted in being overcome, and greater self-control is achieved in daily living. So for example, tonight at St. Paul's Church in Princeton, Kentucky, we're actually going to have five of us priests hearing confessions. It's been advertised as as the one night of the four-night mission where we are going to have multiple priests to make it double as the quote-unquote Lenten penance service for the combined parishes. Uh, and I want to thank our three other brother priests from the area here in the Diocese of Owensboro who will be helping out this evening, Father Joseph and I. Um, so, it, it, you know, we're approaching Holy Week, and, and we can never underestimate the, the power of this beautiful sacrament of reconciliation, this sacrament of conversion. Pope Pius XII defended the practice of a frequent confession, even of venial sins. He says, by it, self-knowledge is increased, Christian humility grows, bad habits are corrected, spiritual neglect and tepidity are resisted, the conscience is purified, the will is strengthened, and a salutary self-control is attained, and grace is increased in virtue of receiving the sacrament itself. And Pope St. Paul VI, echoing that, again, these two men give us these nine elements, uh, benefits of a frequent confession that I just shared. Pope St. Paul VI says, uh, there is great value on frequent confession. Frequent and reverent recourse to this sacrament, even when only venial sins are in question, greatly aids the soul, because it is a constant effort to bring to perfection the grace of one's baptism. So how about that? The graces of baptism are perfected through a frequent confession, 
even if it's only venial sins, right? And so uh, tied to this also is the examination of conscience that, that we want to make before we go in to the confessional, and even a, a good daily examination of conscience just to help rid ourselves of our venial sins, right? Uh, this is all, all very important, and uh, tis the season, I like to say, because it's Lent, but even more tis the season, I think, as we approach uh, Holy Week next week during this uh, fifth week of Lent. Again, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. We have an email from Shane. He says, hello, I've been listening to Open Line for a couple of months now. I appreciate Father's very practical and simple approach when catechizing listeners. I had the privilege of hearing Father Meniza speak at the Man to Man conference held at St. Pius X Parish in Lafayette, Louisiana last year. I observed that Father Meniza closes his talks and radio show by invoking St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. I've recently developed a devotion to St. Joseph under this same title. I often pray to or invoke the Blessed Mother under the title Our Lady of Sorrows, as well as St. Michael via St. Michael the Archangel Prayer. My question, is there a hierarchy when invoking the intercession of the Blessed Mother, St. Joseph, or St. Michael? Is praying to one more efficacious than praying to another? Thank you, Shane. Well, what a great question, Shane, and uh, I commend you... uh, for asking such a question. It shows you're putting a lot of thought into your spiritual life and your spiritual practices, so that's a great thing. To answer your question, I want to go a little bit more in depth, and it's to talk about the difference between worship and veneration. And talking about worship versus veneration and veneration versus worship, it will answer the question per se that you're asking, Shane, about the hierarchy of preference. And here it is. There are three Greek Latinized terms that we Catholic Christians use by the official teaching of the Church to to differentiate between worship, properly speaking, and veneration, properly speaking. And here are the three Greek Latinized terms. Number one, latria, L-A-T-R-I-A, just how it sounds, latria. Latria, Shane, properly speaking, is worship per se, which means it's only geared toward or offered to, if you will, the three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because it's worship, quote-unquote, properly speaking. The three divine persons receive worship. The three divine persons receive latria. Now, let's go down a rung to not worship, but veneration, okay? Mary and the saints and angels receive veneration. The Greek term that's Latinized for veneration is Dulia, just how it sounds, D-U-L-I-A. It's like the feminine name Julia, but instead of a J, it's D, Dulia. Dulia, Shane, is veneration, properly speaking. Now, the third phrase from the Greek meaning that's Latinized is hyperdulia, H-Y-P-E-R hyphen Dulia, D-U-L-I-A. Hyper in the Greek means the greatest of veneration, right? Hyper, the greatest of, dulia, veneration. You put the two together, hyperdulia, you've got the greatest of veneration, and that is the Blessed Virgin Mary. She receives the greatest veneration among those who are venerated, 
okay? So if you start at the top with a wave of your hand, let's say, at the top, at the top you have Latria, three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, the second wave of your hand just below that would be the Hyperdulia, the greatest of veneration. That's the Blessed Virgin Mary, she who was conceived without sin. But veneration, not worship, that's important, okay? Mary, we don't give Mary hyperlatria or sublatria. There's only one latria, and it's latria, and it's worship, and it's the three divine persons. Mary receives dulia, but she receives hyperdulia, the greatest of veneration. Then the third wave of your hand comes a little lower under hyperdulia, and it's simply just dulia, and that's veneration alone, the word alone, veneration. And that is the angels and saints, okay? Now, that's de fide teaching of Holy Mother Church, the, the one Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. Those are the three rungs, if you will, if you think of a rung of a ladder. You've got Latria at the top, Hyperdulia, and then Dulia. In other words, you have worship, the greatest of veneration, and then veneration. Now, that's what the Church teaches de fide. Now, Shane, this is important, what I'm about to say, because you talk about you ask about St. Joseph in your question. There is a fourth category that you can have theological conjecture about, even though Holy Mother Church does not officially teach it. And that level is called proto-dulia. Now, proto in Greek means the first of, and you add dulia to it, it means veneration. The first of veneration, which would go under hyperdulia, the greatest of veneration, but would go above just regular dulia, veneration of the angels and saints. Who can you have theological conjecture receives proto-dulia? Saint Joseph. Saint Joseph. You can have good, solid theological conjecture that Saint Joseph receives proto-dulia. Uh, below the Blessed Mother's hyperdulia, but above the angels and saints, dulia. In fact, there's a chapter on this in uh, Father Don Calloway's uh, Consecration to St. Joseph book that came out a few years back and was very popular during the year of St. Joseph when so many people were encouraged to make their consecration to St. Joseph, and that's something I would urge you to do, uh, is to make your 33-day consecration to St. Joseph and then also make your 33-day de Montfort consecration to the Blessed Virgin Mary. I would do the Blessed Virgins first and then follow with St. Joseph's, and keep up your your veneration, your dulia to St. Michael the Archangel. I, I pray the St. Michael Archangel prayer twice daily after my, I finish my Mass, and then whether it's a public Mass or a private Mass, I always pray the St. Michael the Archangel prayer, and then I also pray it as just part of my daily vocal prayer, my daily regimen. It's one of my prayers that I just say daily, whether I'm getting my walk in, whether I'm driving, whatever. So I say it twice a day. Uh, and I do love St. Joseph under that title, Terror of Demons, and all of my priestly work is put under his patronage, or patronage, under that title. I, when I started Open Line Tuesday back in January of 2018, my gosh, Jack, where has the time gone? We're in 2023. I know. Uh, when I started Open Line Tuesday back in January 2018, uh, I started right then putting him uh, as my patron of, of all my broadcast work, and priestly work in general, broadcast work in particular, both radio and television. But on radio, I can actually invoke him, you know, at the end of each show, and so I do that in thanksgiving to him. But uh, all of my priestly work is, is uh, given to him in that regard under that title. So there you have it, Shane. I commend you. So you want to remember Latria, worship, properly speaking, the three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Then you have Hyperdulia, the greatest of veneration, that's the Blessed Virgin Mary. Think of her 2,600 plus titles, right? Then you have, with theological conjecture, although not officially taught by the church, but you can 
argue for it and still be in good standing. Protodulia, the first of veneration, that would be St. Joseph. And then lastly, number four, dulia, that's simply veneration, and that's all the other angels and saints. And so that answers your question about the hierarchy, and I close with this. You know, Shane, the first three nights of our parish mission, we've been uh, having Eucharistic adoration for the full hour, and then the last night of the mission, Wednesday night, tomorrow night, we'll close with a solemn Mass to close the parish mission, to afford everyone the opportunity to receive Holy Communion in a state of grace, which is one of the five conditions to be fulfilled to receive the plenary indulgence associated with the spiritual work of having attended a parish mission. But the first three nights is the Eucharistic Holy Hour, and guess what we give the Blessed Sacrament when we adore the Blessed Sacrament? You got it. We give the Blessed Sacrament latria, adoration, properly speaking, uh, of the three, uh, because, because the, the Most Holy Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ in His true, real, and abiding presence, the second person of the Trinity. Thank you, Shane, for a great question. 833-288-EWTN. It's Open Line Thursday, Tuesday, excuse me, with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Congratulations to a longtime member of the EWTN Radio family. Savior Radio Network in the Commonwealth of Kentucky is celebrating their 19th year with EWTN. Congratulations to Ed Thomas and his whole team at Savior Radio with stations in Madisonville, Owensboro, Whitesville, and Paducah. From your friends here at EWTN Radio. So it can be done even in the shadow of the general at house of the Fathers of Mercy. That's right. We get it all the way into Bowling Green, Kentucky. With that, we certainly do. It's it's piped in from Owensboro, but we receive those airwaves uh, uh, 92.1 FM in Bowling Green, Kentucky. <laughs> we head now to the phones, and Judy is in the great state of Minnesota. She's listening on Real Presence Radio. Judy, you are on with Father Wade. Hello, Father Wade. Thank you for taking my call. I've been a Catholic all my life, and I have never really understood um, the purpose or the history behind uh, the Church covering the statues and the crucifix. Could you explain that to me? Sure. This is uh, the period just before Passion Week. And because our Lord is about to enter into his passion, this act of covering sacred images, statues, uh, crucifixes, etc., is to remind us that all of our focus is to be on this passion reality of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we cover the crucifixes because we have such a focus on the quickly approaching Good Friday, a week from this coming Friday. We cover the images of the saints because... What makes them saints in heaven, the Paschal mystery, that four-event event of our Lord's passion, death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven, hasn't happened yet. So we cover the saints with a certain somberness or sobriety because all of our focus is on the upcoming Paschal mystery. Again, that four-event event of our Lord's passion, death, resurrection, and ascension. So by covering these uh, images we place the human mind in profound focus on the events that are to unfurl, beginning with Passion Sunday, uh, Palm Sunday, uh, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem 
on, on a donkey to the praise of the people. And just a few days later, they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And he goes to the cross uh, by way of the Via della Rosa, the way of the cross, on Good Friday. And of course, the sacred triduum begins on the night of the arrest, uh, Holy Thursday night, uh, when he is arrested right after the Last Supper. And uh, worth mentioning here too, Judy, although it's not part of your question, the sacred triduum from Holy Thursday evening's Mass of the Lord's Supper through the Easter Vigil, this sacred triduum, this, this sacred three days, is what the word triduum means, is its own liturgical season, capital S. It's its own liturgical season. It's the shortest liturgical season in the entire liturgical year. And a lot of Catholics don't realize that, that the Church actually teaches that the sacred triduum is its own season. And even though it's, it's less than 72 hours long, you know, um, and so uh, we enter into this time now with a certain somberness, a certain sobriety, um, a, 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 an awakening of the good that's to come from it, although it's, it's evil what's taking place. The just man is put to death, which the Old Testament foreshadowed so well with the images of the suffering servant, for example, from the book of Isaiah, just to name one, one aspect of that. The just man going to his death. But the Paschal Mystery will be the great fruit of all of this. And so covering these images and crucifixes help us, helps us to apply this focus for uh, Holy Week, Passion Week, uh, more concertedly, more vividly, and because we're, we're covering up the images that, that, uh, that are images that are made possible by the Paschal Mystery. But now we cover them because our focus is on the Paschal Mystery itself. Uh, ho- hopefully that helps you out, Judy. Thank you so much. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Mary is a first-time caller in Chicago, Illinois, listening on WSFI Radio. Mary, you're on with Father Wade. Hello, Father. Hello, Mary. Thank you for your call. Uh, I want to know about uh, the... uh the steps in prayer. Now, the way I understand this, the saints, the people in heaven are the sanctified, and then the, there is the church suffering in purgatory, and then the militant are the people on earth that are still alive. Now, if I, I want to pray for a soul in purgatory, can I ask the, a saint to pray for them, or is it only for the, the, uh, the militant that can pray for the purgatory, not the saint? No, you can... No, it is not just the militant that can pray for the, purgat- for the purgative souls. So can the church triumphant on their own, and also uh, by you, a member of the church militant, asking a member of the church triumphant to pray for them. So, for example, you might intercede with the Blessed Mother to, to have, have, have God have mercy on your father's soul when your father passed away. You ask the Blessed Mother to intercede for the blessed repose of your father's soul. Um, so, so no, it does not have to be just a member of the church militant praying for the dead who we know or who we do not know are in purgatory or in heaven. We leave that up to God, uh, or in hell for that matter. And if they are in hell, 
the prayers are still applied where God knows they can be applied. Uh, this question was just asked last hour to Dr. David Anders, who has the Call to Communion show on just before I come on on Tuesdays, and uh, he answered that very same question. Uh, 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 well, not same question as yours, but the same question of the example I just gave. The, the woman called in and asked, uh, if, the, if we're praying for the, for the soul of a loved one, but that loved one is in hell by their own doing, by their purposeful, unrepentant mortal sin, because God sends no one to hell. God predestines no one to hell, the Catechism teaches. To go there is by one's own doing with purposeful, non-repentant mortal sin and persistence in that till the end of one's earthly life with full uh, intent and knowledge. Um, where do those prayers go if the person's in hell? And Dr. Andrews rightly answered, God knows where they go, because it's a, it's a holy and pious thought to pray for the dead, Maccabees tells us, for example. And so rest assured that those prayers are being applied to someone. If you're praying for the dead, you're praying for the dead, and those prayers will be applied accordingly. So uh, to answer your question specifically again, no, to pray for the members of the church suffering in purgatory with purposeful intent, uh, also known as the members of the church penitent, by the way, Mary. Uh, the, the purgatory souls have two names as far as the church goes. They're known as the members of the church suffering. They're also known as the members of the church penitent. To pray for the holy souls in purgatory with purposeful will, willed intent, uh, you have the choice of either doing that directly or asking the saints to help intercede for you to pray for the holy souls in purgatory. I love to ask for the saints' help because they've already attained the crown that does not wither, St. Paul teaches. And, uh, you know, I'm, if I'm wearing one, it's, it's, gonna, it's withering after three days like the athlete, right? Uh, I love when St. Paul says that. You know, athletes deny themselves all kinds of things, do they not? And for what? To win a crown of leaves that withers after three days. But the, but the saints, and we Christians, the, the, the saints in heaven, a, a crown that remains imperishable. And those of us still living on earth, a, a, a striving to attain the crown that is absolutely imperishable. So great question. Thank you so much, Mary. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. Carl is in Dallas, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Carl, you're on with Father Wade. Father, um, I'd like you to discuss what is detachment and the benefits, and what's the difference between that and the virtue of temperance. Oh, great. What a great question, Carl. My goodness. We're talking about virtue and vice tonight during the third night of the parish mission, and I'm going to cover this very topic. Fantastic question. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas defines detachment as loving persons, places, and things the way God intends us to love them. Isn't that just a fantastic definition? Detachment is loving persons, places, and things the way God intends us to love them. So the husband and father with a wife and teenagers at home, does he love his secretary at work the way God intends him to love his secretary? I certainly hope so. I think a boss is called to love all of his employees, but he better love them in an ordered way not in a disordered way. He better love them in an ordered way and not in an inordinate way, right? So we can love something the way God intends us to love it, and still, which is detachment, and still want to practice temperance with it, because temperance is hand-in-hand with that detachment, and that detachment is hand-in-hand with temperance. Now, temperance, properly speaking, is one of the four cardinal virtues— 
prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. And when we say cardinal virtues, we mean from the Latin cardinus, which means hinge. Think of a hinge on a door, uh, a beautiful heavy wooden door with maybe four beautiful heavy uh, uh, metal uh, cast iron hinges. They're called the cardinal virtues, uh, Carl, because the entire moral life of an individual hinges on these four virtues. This is why they're called the cardinal virtues. Prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. And so temperance being one of them, of the cardinal virtues, is tied to detachment of loving things the way God intends us to love them. So I can love blueberry pie, especially with with, uh, uh, vanilla ice cream, okay? No doubt. But at the same time, I want to be uh, uh, temperate with it and have a certain detachment with it. I'm not going to go have three portions or four portions of it. Maybe two if it's Thanksgiving, or two if it's Christmas, or two if it's my birthday. But, you know, celebrating with the church on the great solemnities and festivities of one's life, right, and on the church's calendar. But, but as I want to practice temperance, with those things that I'm supposed to love the way God intends me to love them. Does that help you out? Yes. It's like if you have a glass of wine after work, you shouldn't be so attached and love that more than you would other things that are more appropriate. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you want to come home primarily for your spouse and your children. You don't want to come home from work thinking only about the glass of wine. That, That should be secondary to the other fellow human persons in your life. That's a great, that's a great, actually a great analogy. Great question. Thank you so much, Carl, for your call from Dallas, Texas. We appreciate it very much. 833-288-3986. Next up is Thomas in the great state of New Jersey, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Thomas, you're on with Father Wade. Thank you very much. Hi, Father Wade. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm going to try and be as uh, articulate as possible with this one, but, you know, like when you say the prayer, may the souls of the faithful depart to the mercy of God rest in peace. I I used to say to uh, may the souls of the faithful and unfaithful uh, departed rest in peace, but and I realize now that the unfaithful are actually damned, but would you also say that the uh, souls in purgatory were also unfaithful at the time? Because why would they be in there to begin with? Well, they, first of all, we don't know who's damned, who's not. We don't know who's in purgatory or who's not. We know that only the formally canonized by the Church through her authority are in heaven by the process of formal canonization. And even then, it's only their souls that are in heaven because their bodies aren't reunited with their souls yet because the second coming of Christ has not yet happened. So the only ones that we know of the faithful departed, of where they are definitively, are the formally canonized. So be careful when you say the unfaithful are... um, are damned. We don't necessarily know that. This would be Lumen Gentium uh, chapter 14, and also repeated in the beautiful, beautiful general intercessions of the Passion Week service on Good Friday, where we have those beautiful intercessions talking about those who never knew God through their own fault, uh, through not through their own fault, um, those who are non-Christian, who follow a non-Christian God, uh, those who are Christians but who are lapsed from the fullness of the truth of the Catholic faith. So, so we have those beautiful intercessions giving us the virtue of hope, one of the three theological virtues, right, along with love and charity. We have the virtue of hope 
that that somehow salvation can come to them, okay? The only ones we know as to where they are once they die are the formally canonized by the church through her authority, given to her by her bridegroom who founded her, and which we know by her four marks, one holy Catholic and apostolic. We know that they are in heaven because the church has said it is so. And he, but even then, it's only their souls because their bodies aren't reunited yet, as I've already said. And be careful of saying that the purgative souls are unfaithful. They, they're, they're very faithful. In fact, they died in a state of grace with no mortal sin on their soul. However, they died not yet perfectly purified from those forgiven mortal and venial sins while living on earth. So when we confess a sin in the sacrament of reconciliation, the guilt of the sin is forgiven through the words of absolution by the priest, but the temporal punishment still remains for those sins that have been forgiven. Why does the temporal punishment remain even after we've confessed the mortal or venial sin in the sacrament of confession? Because sin is messy. What do I mean by that? I mean number 1469 of the Catechism, the four categorical consequences to sin, personal, social, ecclesial, and cosmic. So if we die still, still attached to sin, imperfectly purified, still need to atone for temporal punishment, then we go to purgatory. So purgatory is about one thing and one thing only, uh, Thomas, and that is this. If at the time of your earthly death, you have not yet atoned for the temporal punishment due to your already forgiven mortal and venial sins. Thereby meaning, if at the time of your earthly death, you have already atoned for the temporal punishment due to your already forgiven mortal and venial sins, you can enter heaven immediately. I talk about all this in my book, The Four Last Things, A Catechetical Guide to Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell the church's eschatology, from the Greek word eschaton, which means the last. The church, you know, we talk about sacramentology, it's the study of the sacraments. We talk about Mariology, it's the study of Mary. Christology, the study of Christ. Ecclesiology, the study of the church. Well, eschatology is the study of the last things, again, from the Greek word eschaton, which means the last. And the church's eschatology is the forgotten doctrine of the Catholic Church since the close of the Second Vatican Council. Not to blame the Second Vatican Council. Second Vatican Council is solid as a rock. I love Vatican II. But rather, I blame progressive forces in the Church at the time of the closing of the Second Vatican Council and the decade that followed, where that doctrine was downplayed and, and poo-pooed, if you will. There's no need to focus on the four last things, you know, and, and that's just not the case. The church never has changed her doctrine on the four last things. And it's, we have forgotten what the church teaches about the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell, three of which will apply to each one of us personally, death, judgment, heaven, or hell. And the purgatory doctrine is part of the heaven of the four last things, because the holy souls in purgatory, as you probably know, Thomas, are assured heaven once they've atoned for their temporal punishment. So it's not that they died, it's not that the holy souls in purgatory died unfaithful, no. They died faithful. They, they died uh, not in a state of, of purposeful, unrepentant mortal sin. They, they died in a state of grace, but they died imperfectly purified of their temporal punishment. And so they need purgatory to help purify them of their temporal punishment. Uh, there, one of my favorite sections in the Universal Catechism that is so deeply rooted in sacred scripture and, of course, sacred tradition and, and the magisterium, the teaching office of the church, uh, is the section on the reality of sin and its consequences where the, the temporal punishment aspect is, is 
talked about very, very clearly. Sin is messy. So to give you a primary example, if an alcoholic confesses his last confession was one month ago, and since his last confession of a month ago, he's fallen three times into a state of drunkenness, he confesses those three falls of drunkenness during that particular confession. He's absolved of those three falls. The guilt is gone from those three falls. But the messiness of those three falls still remain. Maybe during two of those three falls, he had a shouting match with his spouse. Maybe in the third one, he had a shouting match with his teenagers. Well, there's still wounds at home then. There's still wounds that need to be healed from those relationships because your spouse and your children remember you hollering at them in your drunken state. That, that's the social consequences of sin. And remember, the four categorical consequences of sin are personal, social, ecclesial, and cosmic. So, so sin is messy. So when we confess the sin, the, the, the guilt is forgiven, but the temporal punishment remains. And we need to atone for that temporal punishment, either on earth while still living or in purgatory after we die. How can we atone for it while still living on earth? By embracing suffering, by striving for plenary and partial indulgences, by carrying out good works, not for the works themselves, but for the charity they help prosper to our fellow human person, our fellow human beings, the 14 works of mercy, seven for the body, seven for the soul, the corporal and spiritual works of mercy, respectively, the three eminent good works, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Um, you know, there, there's all kinds of ways that, that, that we can make atonement for temporal punishment while still living, so that God willing, by the time we do die, by the time we do experience our earthly death, we will have atoned for all that temporal punishment for already forgiven mortal and venial sin, and thereby receive the greatest of all graces of entering heaven immediately upon our death. That's God's plan A for us. His plan B for you, Carl, if you want to call, or Thomas, excuse me, his plan B for you, Thomas, if you want to call it that, would be to go to purgatory. Why do I say that? Because at least the holy souls in purgatory are assured heaven. Again, purgatory falls under the four last things doctrine, the church's eschatology, under the, the heading of heaven. Death, judgment, heaven, and hell are the four last things. Purgatory is discussed in my book under the chapter on heaven, because at least they're assured uh, uh, heaven after they've purgated their temporal punishment. Great question, Thomas. Thank you so much. Be sure to check out the Sunrise Morning Show with Anna Mitchell and Matt Swain tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Jacqueline in the great state of Arkansas, listening on WSFI Online. Jacqueline, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. My question is, um, does, uh, do, do cats and dogs have a soul? The reason I'm asking is because I spoke with uh, a lady that is very committed to this church. I don't want to mention because I don't. that's not the point. Um, but she is very knowledgeable in the church thing, all the scripture okay. things. They, she even sent me some um, um, sites, the scripture sites. I want to believe that they do have a soul, sure. but um, do they have a soul? You yeah, great question. In the essence of time, let me answer that for you. So uh, animals have souls and so do plants. But does this answer, answer sound like something out of the New Age movement? No, not at all. Don't, don't worry, it isn't. Rest assured that we're not saying animals and plants have souls like human beings have souls, okay? The soul is simply the principle of life. And since animals and plants are living things, they do have souls, what are called vegetative souls, but not in the sense in which human beings have souls, rational, intellective souls. Our souls are rational, theirs aren't. Uh, and ours are rational because they're spiritual, not material. 
their soul, we would say, is, is a vegetative reality. Animals and plants can't, can't do anything which transcends the limitations of their matter, of their physical stuff that makes them up. Although some animals seem clever, uh, they don't actually possess conceptual intelligence. They can't, for instance, conceive of the abstract uh, notion of justice, that justice is a good, where human beings can have intellective thought processes about justice and the fact that justice is good. Animals and plants also lack a moral sense. So when you scold uh, Fifi or Spot for chewing the carpet and tell them that what they did was wrong, you aren't assigning guilt of sin to them since they can't commit a sin. They're not moral creatures. Only human persons are, are moral creatures. Animal and vegetative souls are dependent entirely on matter uh, for their operation and their being. They cease to exist at death, so there's no doggy heaven. Human souls, by contrast, aren't material. They're spiritual. Only a spirit can know and love and be moral. Uh, a spirit's two chief faculties being the intellect, which knows, and the will, which chooses based on love. So we say the intellect knows and the will, which loves. We know that human souls are spiritual since, uh, since humans can know and love. They can do both of those things. They can know and they can love. We also know that human souls are immortal because spirits can't decompose. They have no parts. Only a thing which has parts can fall apart. So our body falls apart in the grave, but not the soul. A spirit is a unit. It has no top or bottom, no left or right, no inside or outside. Every bit of matter, we say, even the smallest, has parts. The human body can decompose. It's made of matter, right, uh, after all. But, but the human soul cannot decompose. That's why we say it's immortal. Uh, so, so a good discussion of the differences between human beings and animals is available uh, in, in uh, Mortimer Elder's book, The Difference of Man and the Difference It Makes. The Difference of Man and the Difference It Makes. Um, so we have rational intellective souls that are immaterial. Uh, uh, animals and plants have non-rational uh, material souls, we could say, insofar as their souls do not go outside their matter, their physical stuff that makes them up. And we would say they would have uh, non-rational for the, for the brood animals, non-rational souls, and vegetative souls for the plants. Great question. Thank you so much. You know, Father, one of the, the, the consequences of having a rational soul is the ability to feel deep emotion. And uh, some folks want their pets in heaven, man. <laughs> That's right, and, and it is important to say that when, when we're given the description of heaven that eye has not seen and ear has not heard, nor has it even dawned on the human mind what God has prepared for those who love him, remember the church fathers of the first eight centuries, they, they, they um, defined that passage from Scripture, provided exegesis to it, saying that the happiness that you receive on earth from anything, including your pet, will be surpassed when you enter heaven. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always, St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us. On behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Back at it tomorrow with Father Mitch. Until then, God bless.